Um, I, think, I think the last time I spoke here was probably more than three years ago. Uh, so it's, it's been a very long time. Um, but it's, I've, I, I want you to know that I still consider, Joy and I both consider Wellspring still to be our home church. In fact, uh, we consider ourselves to have been sent out from here, um, sort of doing missions work amongst the godless nation <laughs> of America. Um, so, well, it's, at, at any rate, it's good to be back. Um, as I said, we, we still do consider this our home church. Um, I'm sure that my mother has kept, <laughs> kept all of you more updated than you need to be on, uh, on where Joy and I have been sort of in life recently, but um, she, she actually asked me before the service to give another update. So I, I will let you know sort of how things have been with us. Um, so for those of you who, who don't know, at the end of la- the last academic year, um, so I guess this was probably around April or May, um, I was... Uh, professor at Wheaton College and um, took on a new responsibility, took on an offer uh, to move a couple hours away from there, um, so about two hours and a half away from Chicago uh, to take on a job teaching at a university and seminary. So now I am working training pastors in the Presbyterian Church uh, and also in the United Methodist Church. So that's um, sort of what I do and, and where I am, and it's very good to be back here. So um, it just so happens that, that this week uh, is, is the week, I, I understand you've been working through the Apostles' Creed, um, and this is the week where we come to the line, he will come to judge the living and the dead. And this is kind of an interesting one, because all the other stuff about Jesus that's in the Apostles' Creed um, is, is a lot nicer, isn't it? Um, so here, here I am... Uh, about to speak to you about the image of Christ as judge, probably the least popular image of Christ that we see in the New Testament, probably one of the ones that we talk about the least. In fact, I go so far as to say that many of us actually have a problem with the idea of judgment in the Bible. And it's, it's a theological problem, and it's also sort of just a moral problem. So, um, if we go to the next slide there, Daniel, um, here's, here's me trying to sum up our problem with judgment. The first um, issue is that the idea of God's judgment is seemingly at odds with the concept of God's grace. And what I mean by this is when we talk about Christ coming back to judge the living and the dead, isn't that idea of judgment um, and, and God a- acting as judge at odds with his infinite grace. I mean, we tend to characterize God as having infinite grace, but if he's infinitely graceful, then how can he also judge? So that's the first problem. The second problem is that that judgment seems kind of ironically to be unjust because think about it. How can God punish humans simply for being human? Um, and, and the reason I say this is God, of course, created humanity. He made us who we are. So doesn't it seem sort of unjust that God would punish us for being who he made us to be? So that's, that's another problem that's often sort of raised as a theological problem with the idea of God as judge. The third problem is um, maybe a little bit more common Um, And you might have heard people say this before, but that idea, that image of God or Christ as judge really kind of formulates this image of God as an angry and vengeful God. 
right? And so that's one of the reasons why I think we tend to downplay the image of Christ as judge. It's because we're a little bit afraid that what we'll see in, as a result is the sort of image of God as this angry, vengeful being. Um, in fact, funny story, when I, was, um, when I was studying at the University of Toronto, I was studying at Trinity College, and uh, Saint, so Trinity College is, um, is an Anglican college, uh, at the University of Toronto, and there's also St. Mike's, which is a Catholic college. And um, during the parades, where all the all the different colleges would come out and you know and chant and cheer and kind of do all the spirit stuff, um, Trinity College would always point at the St. Mike's people and say, "Angry God," and then we point at ourselves and say, "Happy God," right? Because there's this idea that that you know God in Catholicism is this angry, vengeful, judgy God, and you know the Protestant God is this happy God. Um, and that's partly because we've tried to downplay the image of God as judge in our Christian culture. So that's kind of the third problem. Now, I also see a fourth problem. And this is one that I think um, you're, you're probably familiar with. There's this idea that if God is a judge, and if you know Christians are the people that follow the God who is judge, well, that implies sort of a moral superiority you know, of one person, of Christians, over other people. And so, how many times have you heard, you know, don't judge me, or you don't know my life, right? Um, and in fact, Christians are sort of known for being judgmental in the world. Um, and so, there, that's another problem with this idea of judgment. So to summarize, what I'm saying here is that we have a bit of a problem with judgment because it makes us feel bad about ourselves, and it also kind of makes God look like a bloodthirsty sociopath. And so that's not really the sort of image of God that we want to perpetuate. However, that doesn't mean that God isn't a judge. So we need to sort of deal with this and and, and figure out how do we then... um, both hold to that biblical idea of Christ as judge, which we also see in the creed, while also understanding that, you know, judgment doesn't need to make us feel bad about ourselves. And maybe God isn't a bloodthirsty sociopath. Now, where does our idea of the judgment of God as a sort of, um, you know, bloodthirsty, vengeful thing come from? Well, you can actually track it. So if we go to the next slide here, um, understand that uh, that you've already heard about the classic American sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now, this is a sermon that was um, given during the Great Revival and delivered by a man named Jonathan Edwards in Colonial Massachusetts. The thesis of the sermon was that God may cast wicked people into hell at any given moment. And so... The most famous quote from this sermon, and this sermon is still quite popular today, especially in the United States, um, the kind of key quote is, There is nothing that keeps wicked men at any one moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. In other words, God holds you all. God is angry and he holds you all as wicked people in, this, in, in, in his hand. Um, and at any moment he could sort of let you go and have you drop into, into the flames of eternal damnation. So that's sort of the classic conception um, of God's judgment. And interestingly enough, that, that was sort of new at the time. And that was really specific. That idea was really specific to the period of the great American revival. Um, and so that actually, we don't see this, that sort of imagery earlier in the tradition so much. But that's really become quite popular now. Now, 
Something else that I, I, I learned about this sermon since is that this sermon was also delivered apparently in monotone. So he gave this whole sermon on how you're all sinners and how God could cast you into hell at any time in absolute monotone. And people were weeping and wailing in the aisles. And I wonder if it's because, um, you know, he's sort of just delivering it so flatly or if it was because they were genuinely terrified. Now, the, the problem is with that sort of image of God as judge and that sort of idea of the judgment of God. Um, basically, there's, there's a few problems, but the one that I really want to highlight is that, that that image of God results in a relationship based on fear rather than on love. And so one of the questions that you need to ask yourself, I think, is do you believe in God and do you follow God because you love him and because he's good, or do you follow him because you're afraid of him? And that's a question that I I think we don't ask often enough today in the church. Um, And something that's really interesting is that there is this sort of culture of fear in Christianity. And I think it's an unfortunate thing. I don't think it's meant to be that way. But because we have this image of God as this judge who could cast us into hell at any moment— a sort of culture of fear has developed. And in fact, um, a lot of political scientists have been doing studies of that culture of fear and have connected it to a lot of the po- political turmoil that's gone on in the United States, that, um, that there's a sort of culture of fear perpetuated in our churches, and that comes out in the political sphere as well. And so we need to be careful of that. So do we follow God because we love him and because he loves us? Or do we follow him because we're afraid of him? Another dangerous effect of thinking in that way about God is that the final judgment can kind of also become a revenge fantasy. Because you can kind of think, well, you know, there's all these people who've who've done bad things to me in this life now. And you know what? They'll get what's coming to them, right? God is going to be just and he's going to, um, he's going to give them what they deserve. A further problem is that it leads us to focus on the end, you know, when God's judgment will happen, because that's what we're afraid of, rather than on the church's present mission. So it sort of forces us to think a little bit too much about the end and about the end of our lives, rather than what we're doing here and now, and what God has called us to in the present. So we sort of want to avoid that way of thinking about God and about judgment. And yet, um, if we go to the next slide here, this is probably going to be hard to see. Um, but this is one of the more famous Renaissance paintings of the final judgment. And as you can see, um, well, he might not be able to see it too well, but up, up top, you've got God and kind of all the good people with God, and they're sort of having fun up there. But down below, there's a bunch of demons beating people with clubs and poking them um, in the rear with pitchforks. Um, and, and so this is sort of the image of the final judgment that's been perpetuated um, in Western culture and became really popular in North America after the period of the Great Revival with sermons like um, sinners in the hands of an angry God. So that's sort of our typical image of the judgment, right? Well, Jesus is going to come and he's going to come on the clouds and he's going to be real shiny and all the good people get to go up with him and everyone else, whether they're, whether they're bad or just sort of, you know, whatever, um, end up being beaten with clubs by demons and getting poked. Um, If we go to the next slide, too. So, this is one of my favorite movies, by the way. If you haven't seen Judgment Day, do yourself a favor and uh, and see this this cinematic masterpiece. Um, But... (laughs) 
So Terminator 2, one of the most famous movies of the kind of 80s golden era of cinema. Um, in, in this film, uh, it's called Judgment Day because Judgment Day in the Terminator world is this day when basically humanity decides that um, it's going to build all these machines and all these robots and eventually um, computers going to take over and humanity kind of gets too big for its britches and what happens is, is the computers take over and, um, and, and they basically wipe out almost all of humanity in an event that it calls Judgment Day, right? And so, what the, why am I talking about this? Well, I'm talking about it because our image in, in our culture of what Judgment Day is supposed to be, right? The coming of the Lord, um, our image of it is this time of destruction and death, right? When humanity has done so much wrong that something will have to happen in order to basically just wipe humanity out. And so the image that we associate with the idea of God's judgment is essentially the idea of God's wrath and images of extreme violence and death and destruction. So my question to you today is how do we redeem this? And is this really the biblical perspective on the judgment? So what we need to do, let's go to the next slide here now, is talk about what it actually means to be judge. So if we understand that Christ is a judge, that that is indeed a part of Christ's character, it's a part of who he is, we see that in the Bible, and the early church certainly portrayed Christ as a judge in the creeds, both the Nicene Creed and in the Apostles' Creed. So what does it mean to be a judge within the biblical worldview? Because what's a judge for us today? Well, a judge, if we're thinking kind of in uh, English and in, in North America, a judge is somebody who basically deliberates, right, and sort of decides uh, on cases, right, court cases. That's sort of typically what we imagine judges to do. They decide what is legal and what is not. But that isn't what judge means in the Bible. So we need to understand if we're, going to try, if we're going to try to understand the concept of Christ as judge, we need to understand what the Bible thinks a judge is. So, first of all, we need to go back to the original language. So let, let's talk just really briefly about the Hebrew here. So, in Hebrew, the word that we translate in English as justice is a word called mishfat. And that means what is right. Right? So that's essentially all it means. Justice, what we say, when we say justice, when we read the word justice in English in the Old Testament, what we're reading is an English translation of the word mishfat, which really means what is right. And what a judge is, now the word for judge in Hebrew shares the same root as the word mishfat, because the word for judge is shofat. And a shofat is one who makes things right. That's what a judge is in the biblical worldview. So when we think of judges today, we sort of think of someone, um, you know, with a white powdered wig sitting up, sitting up uh, with a gavel, kind of deciding who goes to jail and who doesn't, or how much you're going to have to pay, um, you know, for your parking ticket. That's not what a judge is in the biblical world. Because what a, in the biblical world, what a judge is, is it's someone who makes things right. And so what the biblical judges are, when we look in the book of Judges, we see that the biblical judges in the book of Judges are liberators of the oppressed. That's specifically what they are. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about this. By the way, um, I really like this icon that I've got here. 
Um, any guesses? This is one of the judges. Any guesses as to which judge it is? There's really only one that it could possibly be. Yeah, I heard somebody whispered or say Deborah. Yeah, so this is, this is Deborah. And in the Christian tradition, Deborah is known as Righteous Deborah, um, the righteous judge. And the reason for that is if you read the stories of the judges, the, the other judges aren't really all that righteous when it comes down to it. Gideon, um, you know, probably the most famous judge, Gideon, and then also Samson. Um, they're probably the two most famous. They get into some stuff that isn't really all that righteous, whereas Deborah, the only female judge, manages to remain steadfast and faithful throughout her life. And that's a really interesting thing. So in the Christian tradition, um, it's hard to see there, but this actually says righteous Deborah at the top on this icon because she's understood to be um, the most righteous of the biblical judges. So here's um, a passage from Judges. If we go to the next slide there. Um, Judges 3.9. There's this cycle that we see developing in Judges. Judges 3.9 says this. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord... The Lord raised up a deliverer, uh, which in Hebrew is Moshiach, for the Israelites who delivered them. And so when you read the book of Judges, this is what happens over and over and over again. Um, This one verse gets repeated constantly in Judges. The Israelites are oppressed. They cry out to the Lord. The Lord raises up a deliverer for the Israelites, and that person delivers them. And the deliverer is called a Moshiach. And that is derived from the Hebrew word Yasha, which means he saves, from which actually the name Jesus comes from. Yeshua um, is, is derived from this same word. So what it actually means, Moshiach means a deliverer or one who saves, who liberates. And in the book of Judges, in the Bible... That word, Moshiach, is synonymous with judge in Judges. They have two titles. Sometimes they're called Moshiach. Sometimes they're called Shophet, which we translate as judge. So in other words, if we want to know what a judge is in the biblical worldview, a judge is a deliverer, someone who makes things right again by liberating the people. So if we go to the next slide here, this is the pattern that we see develop. I know this is really hard to see. I'm sorry, guys. Um, But there's a pattern that develops in the book of Judges. Basically, what happens is, is Israel disobeys. And then because Israel disobeys, Israel is oppressed. Another empire, a kingdom comes in and begins to oppress the children of Israel. Then what happens is, because they're oppressed, Israel cries out to God for liberation. Then what happens is God hears their cries and raises up for them a liberator. And then Israel is liberated. And then again they disobey, and then again they're oppressed, and then they cry out, and then God raises a liberator for them, and then Israel is liberated, and then they disobey again, and so on and so forth. And that's really all there is to the book of Judges. That's what it's about. So in the book of Judges, the judges are God's liberators. The people that he raises up in order to deliver them, in order to deliver his people, sorry, from oppression. So if we go to the next slide here, talk about the biblical concept of judgment. So that's the biblical concept of what a judge is. Now, what about the concept of judgment? Well, in the Old Testament, 
in the books of the prophets, we hear about the day of judgment, right? Judgment day, just like um, Arnold Schwarzenegger's Terminator 2, the judgment day. But in the Old Testament prophetic books, when we hear about the day of judgment, that day of judgment is interwoven with the day of restoration. In fact, the day of restoration is judgment day. They're the same day, the day when God will make things right again. That's judgment day. So whenever you read Old Testament prophecy and even New Testament prophecy about the day of judgment, what you will always see interwoven with that, inextricable from it, is this idea that God is making things right again and he will restore humanity and he will restore his people and he will make the earth right. So, we see a pattern develop in the prophetic books. And the pattern is this. When the nations are judged, God will restore and liberate his people from oppression. Just as we saw with the book of Judges. So, let's go to the next slide here. Isaiah. This is probably the most famous um, passage about the judgment in the Old Testament, Isaiah 2, 4. Um, so this is, does anyone know what this, uh, this picture of the statue is here that I've got up on the slide? Does anyone recognize this? Anyone know where this statue is found? It's a really famous statue. It's not Rome. That's a pretty good guess though. Um, yeah it's, the, exact, yeah, it's the United Nations. So this is um, from the United Nations Sculpture Garden. So the statues that are found outside the United Nations building. Um, and it's a statue of uh, a man beating a sword into a plowshare. And so this comes from, of course, Isaiah 2.4. He shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many people. So we get this idea that God is going to be judge. The judgment day. He's going to judge between the nations. But what happens when the nations are judged? What is the effect? This is the effect. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. In other words, what the judgment of God brings is not violence, but the opposite. It brings peace. It brings the elimination of war. Nations shall not rise up against nation. They shall not learn war anymore. That's the effect of God's judgment. He is making the earth right. It's not about casting people into hell. Instead, it's about creating peace, restoring the earth. Joel, verses, uh, Joel chapter 3, verses 1 to 2, says this, For then in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations. In other words, there's this idea that the nations will be united at the judgment. And I will bring them to the valley of Jehoshaphat. In other words, he'll bring them um, to, well, to Israel, and I will enter into judgment with them there. Now, notice there's a few things going on here. First of all, God is going to restore the fortunes of his people. Um, and so here it says Judah and Jerusalem. Now, I want to make sure that you understand that when the Old Testament is talking about the restoration of Judah and Jerusalem, we need to be careful not to conflate that with the modern state of Israel. Um, because really what this is about is about the people of God, which includes both Jew and Gentile all over the world, 
Um, and so we need to be careful not to, because there's a lot of people out there who think that, you know, this is really all about the modern state of Israel. But it isn't really about that. It's about God's faithful remnant uh, com- comprised of peoples um, from all sorts of nations. So God will restore his people and he will gather the nations together, uniting them. And he will enter into judgment with them at that time. Let's look at one more. Um, so the next slide here, this is uh, Zephaniah. So Zephaniah is a really interesting book of the minor prophets. And the reason it's an interesting book is because it's two cha- it's three chapters long. It's two and a half chapters of just like God just talking about judgment and vengeance and violence and wrath um, and about how he's going to do all these things to the nations and how Israel has done wrong and how the other nations have done wrong and the empires have done wrong. And so they're all going to get what they deserve. And then, and then, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Zephaniah says, but rejoice. Why? Because I've taken the charge that is set against you away. In other words, this is what you deserve, but that's not what you're going to get. And so we get what follows all these proclamations of judgment. We get this, this what's called Zephaniah's song, and it's a song of restoration. And so this is actually what is going to happen. This is what we get in Zephaniah. This is what it tells us is actually going to happen at the judgment. It says, I will deal with all your oppressors at that time. And I will save the lame. In other words, those who are sick. I will gather the outcast. And I will change their shame into praise. And renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you home. At the time when I gather you. Right? He's gathering the people. For I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth. When I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. So here he is proclaiming. Um, this judgment of wrath upon the people. And then he says, but that's not actually what's going to happen. What's going to happen is I'm going to restore you. And how am I going to do that? I'm going to deal with your repressors. I'm going to move, remove the oppressors. I'm going to save those who are on the margins of society, the lame, the outcasts, those who are shamed. I will change their shame into praise. I love this line, at that time, I will bring you home. The idea being that God's people um, are often portrayed as people who have no home. There's a special place, in other words, amongst the people of God for those who have no home. And he's going to gather them together. And they're going to be restored. So what I want to point out here is that this is mostly good news. It's bad news for some people, but it's bad news for who? The oppressors, right? So that's really what's going on here. Um, The judgment, there is judgment pronounced on the oppressors, but ultimately, judgment is about restoration. It's about making things right on the earth again. It's about the restoration of humanity. So let's draw some conclusions from this about judgment and justice in the next slide. Um, the judgment must be understood in the context of oppression and liberation. That's how the Old Testament understands it. So when we think about the, um, the idea or image of Christ as judge, we need to understand it within that context that the Old Testament provides. The judgment is the establishment of justice on the earth, 
against oppression. So in other words, justice stands against oppression in these passages. It's God ultimately acting out of his infinite capacity for justice to make things right again. And in the biblical worldview, at the judgment, God is going to be on the side of the oppressed, not on the side of the oppressors. The Bible is very clear on that point in the minor prophets. So, so much for for the Old Testament conception of judgment. Now, on the next slide here, um, there is this painting. There's the painting that, that was also on the title screen. Um, this is a recent painting. It's a painting called Judgment by an artist by the name of Essa Nema, who is a Syrian Christian. Um, and he is a Syrian Christian who uh, paints... Um, religious artwork that comes out of his experiences in Syria um, and and through the turmoil that's going on there today. And uh, something that I find just fascinating with this painting is how right he gets the biblical conception of justice and of judgment. Because what we see here, um, he has said that in his paintings, the colors red and orange represent the fires of war. And in this, we see Christ coming into the midst of that. And you can see how the red is being pushed back by Christ, by the light that comes with him. And here, what we see him doing is not bringing violence, but instead lifting up the oppressed. That's what he's doing. And so this is an image of the judgment that comes from someone who has been experiencing um, some of the worst oppression that we have seen in the last century. So that really is, I think, this is, this is an excellent depiction of, um, of what the, the biblical concept of judgment is supposed to be. So our next slide here, how, do we, how does this help us to better understand the image of Christ as judge, right? We started off um, talking about the creed, which says, and he will come to judge the living and the dead, which tells us two things. First, that Christ will come again. And second, when he comes again, he will judge humanity. Now, the Nicene Creed, interestingly, which is, the Nicene Creed is a, an, ex, well, it sort of expands on the Apostles' Creed. That's a really simplistic way to put it, but that's sort of what, what it is. Um, the Nicene Creed adds a line to that, which is, whose kingdom shall have no end. And so if we take that into account, also we learn that the early church wanted us to think that Jesus will come again. When he comes again, he'll judge humanity. And that the judgment and full realization of the kingdom are connected. That there's something going on here. That, um, that there's, the kingdom of God is connected to the second coming of Christ in some way. Not that it is begun by the second coming of Christ, but that it is brought to its completion. So that brings us to the passage that we read today. Hebrews 9, 24 to 28 which says, and I'll, I'll just read it again, Christ did not enter a sanctuary made by human hands, a mere copy of the true one, but he entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was to offer himself again and again as the high priest enters the holy place year after year with blood that is not his own, for then he would have had to suffer again and again since the foundation of the world. In other words, Christ has offered himself once for all as a sacrifice for the sins of humanity. Then it goes on to say this, and this is where it gets interesting. 
Just as it is appointed for mortals to die once, and after that, the judgment. So we're going to be talking about the judgment and coming of Christ here. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. That's a really interesting passage because it tells us what the second coming of Christ is actually about. What it says is really revealing. He's not coming back to deal with sin. His return is not about what's going to happen to sinful humanity. It's about salvation. It's about deliverance. It's about redemption. He's coming to save, or the Greek can also be translated here, to redeem those who are eagerly waiting for him. Why isn't he coming back to deal with the sinful people of the world? Why is sin not what he's concerned with? The reason is because he dealt with that the first time around. And so the return of Christ is not about trying to deal with the problem of sin because that's over and done with. The return of Christ is about redemption and liberation. And Hebrews is very clear about that. So that's the image of Christ the judge that we're given. So basically, Christ's first coming inaugurated, as the passage says, the end of the age. So in other words... If you want to talk about the end times, they've been going on since Christ first came. And that doesn't mean that, you know, in our generation or whatever, you know, the the end of the end is going to come. It's just to say that we have entered into a new age with the coming of Christ the first time around. And so he's inaugurated the kingdom of God. And when he did that, Christ already dealt with sin on the cross. And so because of that, according to Hebrews, he's not going to deal with sin again when he comes at the judgment. That's not the purpose. So in other words, it's not about the wrath. It's not about um, making more atonement because he did that already. It's about salvation. And so the purpose of the second coming is to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So I'm sure in the back of many of your minds, you're thinking, well, what about Revelation? Isn't there something about being thrown into the lake of fire in Revelation? Don't we need to talk about that? Um, Well, we do. So Revelation presents us with an image of this coming of Christ. And um, specifically in chapters 18 through 21, I've got, got a little outline here on the next slide. This is the gist of the end of Revelation. Basically, God judges Babylon which is the great empire and causes it to fall in chapter 18 of Revelation. Here, a lot of people try to, I think, read this a little bit too literally. Um, Babylon represents empire, represents imperialism. And when you read the text, it's very clear that that's what it's trying to represent. Um, Babylon didn't exist as an empire at the time when John uh, was writing Revelation. So it's meant to to sort of just be this catch-all for empire, God judges the empire and he causes it to fall because it has oppressed the people of the earth. That's who's judged. Then in chapter 19, the rider appears from heaven, the white rider. Many people associate that with Christ and defeats the beast who has oppressed the earth. So again, what we're seeing here in chapters 18 and 19 is the removal of the oppressors from the earth. First, imperial political powers that are oppressive are removed. And then the beast which sort of Well, I'm not entirely sure what the beast represents. No one really is, um, but it certainly also represents a sort of oppression. That's removed. And then in chapter 20, Satan is defeated and removed. And then the second part of chapter 20, we get the judgment of humanity, 
which is followed by, guess what? The restoration. It's followed by the creation of the new heaven and the new earth. So judgment and restoration are so inextricably intertwined that even in the New Testament, we see that once the judgment happens, then humanity is restored. And that's where we get that beautiful passage in Revelation. Behold, the throne of God is amongst the mortals, right? There will be no more death, no more pain, no more crying. Behold, I am making all things new. So that's what the judgment is about. Um, This is what it says in Revelation. Um, It does say that what's going to happen is they're going to be, everyone's going to be judged. And then verse 14, it says death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. So even death and hell itself as oppressive forces are removed and defeated and destroyed in the judgment. They are ultimately what is judged. And it says that that's the second death, the lake of fire, the death into which death itself has to go. It goes on to say, um, for those of you who are waiting for that hellfire and brimstone, it says anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. And that's kind of the bit where, um, you know, where kind of the the old hellfire and brimstone bit comes in. Um, But the question is, who are these people, right? It seems as though when we read Revelation and we read the, the minor prophets, the judgment is good for most people, right? It's the removal of war. It's the removal of oppression. It's a creation of peace. It's the restoration of the world and of humanity. So who's it bad for? Who is getting thrown into the lake of fire? Well, um, if we go to the next slide, there is one place in the New Testament where it talks about who ends up on kind of uh, the... (laughs) the good side of the judgment and who ends up on sort of the not so good side of the judgment. And that is in the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew chapter 25 verses 31 to 46. Really the only place in the New Testament that is entirely clear about who ends up on which side of the judgment. And so in this parable, uh, the world is being judged and um, the sheep end up on God's right, and the goats end up on God's left. And they're sorted that way. And the way that they're sorted is really interesting and important to take note of, because what is it that allows um, you to be counted amongst the sheep and on the right hand of God, on kind of the good side of God's judgment? Well, it's um, if you read that passage... Actually, maybe we should read it. I wasn't going to, but maybe we'll, we'll actually read it together. Give me a second here. I like this passage, so it's always, always good to read it. Although I think, I think James Scholl probably read it about a billion times when he was here. So maybe that's his legacy. Anyways, um, so there's the sorting of the nations, and it says, then the king will say to to those at his right hand, come you that are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then verse 35 and 36 are key. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food or thirsty and gave you something to drink? 
And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you, or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. Then he will say to those at his left hand, You that are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Remember, there's that stuff about Satan being removed and death and Hades being cast in the lake of fire. Why? For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. How appropriate that we see that today. Naked and you did not give me clothing. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did not do it to, the le- to one of the least of these, you did, it, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now that is fascinating because that's really the only place in the New Testament we get this clear statement of who's on what side. And so ultimately, the thing that I find fascinating is that those who are able to go into eternal life and inherit the kingdom are those who do the work that Christ himself does in the gospel and that he does at the day of judgment. That is, those who work towards the restoration of humankind and of the world by serving those who are in need and righting the wrongs that exist in our society. Who are those, on the other hand, that go away, as it says, into eternal punishment? Well, it's those that not only turn a blind eye, but do not welcome, do not care for the sick, right? Who give the hungry no food. In other words, it is those who are a part of the system of cyclic oppression that we see in humanity from the beginning until now. And so what I want you to come away with is this. Ultimately, when you think about the judgment, it's not so much about death and destruction and fire and brimstone as it is about God making things right again, acting in his capacity as judge, as one who does what is right to make things right again, to remove the forces of oppression from the world and to liberate humanity. So that's, that's where I want to end today. Let's pray.